And so I think that when we think about how is social media, right back to your question, changing the way people talk about race online, it's it's unmasking racism. It's making racism more visible, but it's also empowering folks to see, witness, and take part in uh, resistance against racism um, in, in ways that that feel very new and feel you know very very hopeful in terms of us being able to change the national discourse. so much for joining us here at the interesting times podcast i hope everyone out there is doing all right and i'm excited to be back up with a new episode featuring an important and fascinating discussion with dr rob eshman uh, from columbia university and the focus of our discussion will be dr eshman's recent important book entitled when the hoods come off racism and resistance in the digital age I've read the book in preparation for our discussion, and I can say that it really opened up some new pathways in my thinking and outlook and understanding of the issues of race and the intersection of race and technology, particularly social media, and how these changes uh, intersect with one another in ways that fundamentally alter and transform uh, the experiences, discussions of, and resistance towards racial discrimination in our present day. So as is clear, this book really takes on pressing matters that are front and center um, to our experiences in life and politics in American society, but I would say increasingly global society in, in fundamentally important ways, um, though it may play out in different social and cultural and historical contexts. Um, issues of race, racial discrimination, um, are front and center um, in understanding a host of phenomenon playing out across the global stage. And, um, you know, we, we touch on this in great detail in the discussion, but what I will say here too is that um, why I think Dr. Eshman's book is, is really um, so important to take a look at and, and to read and, and in some ways grapple with um, is because uh, it provides, I think, a intellectual architecture and a way of approaching these issues that, again, really opened my eyes to some new ways of thinking and in important ways challenged some of the assumptions or um, ideas I brought into reading the book, which I think is really one of the best outcomes you can have from reading uh, a really well-written um, academic book, you know, that walks that fine line between um, academic scholarship and also weighing in in important and insightful ways on contemporary political social matters. And I think the best way to demonstrate the book's importance is to turn it over to um, our discussion with the author himself. Uh, again, I, was, I feel so um, fortunate to be able to read um, such important scholarship, such important um, ideas and insights about the world we're living in and have the opportunity to speak with the individual who really brought uh, this together into an exceptional book. Um, so before we get to the conversation, I just want to offer a bit of a more formal introduction to our guest today. 
again, this is Dr. Rob Eshman. He is an associate professor of social work at Columbia University. Um, he writes on educational inequality, community violence, racism, social media, and youth well-being. Uh, his research seeks to uncover individual, group, and institutional level barriers to racial and economic equity, and he pays special attention to the heroic efforts everyday people make to combat those barriers. Um, I think that, you know, really captures uh, a lot of what comes out in the book, and, and particularly that last part about um, thinking of these efforts of everyday people and their heroic efforts and so forth. One of the things that really um, makes the book stand out is the detailed kind of ethnographic and interview research that helps bring the voices of these students um, into the conversation um, that is etched out by the broader book project. So um, again, uh, you, you, I don't think you'll regret reading this book, and I found it to be, uh, again, illuminating and challenging uh, in the best sense of the word. Okay, so let's uh, turn it over to the conversation here. Thanks again, as always, for supporting the show. Um, please uh, share and, and you know tell your friends to check out the Interesting Times um, podcast and also the essays we have on our website. That's theinterestingtimes.substack.com. Um, I'm working on some new essays to have up, uh, and I'm just going to try to keep uh, moving forward. Um, I hope everyone, again, is doing well, and thanks again, always, for your support. Hey, Dr. Eshman, thanks so much for joining us here at the Interesting Times Podcast. Of course, thanks for having me. It's certainly our pleasure, and um, it's really uh, quite an honor to have someone on who is uh, as accomplished in, in many ways as you are, and also who has just um, recently published uh, the subject of our discussion today. The book is uh, called When the Hoods Come Off, um, Racism and Resistance in the Digital Age. And as I just noted in the little discussion we had before we started recording, there's just, uh, I think I have too many questions to ask you in the time we have. So um, it's, a, it's a book full of important insights and observations and I think really helps uh, helped me a lot and I think will help any reader kind of situate themselves for understanding uh, how college students or young people more generally, you know, engage with the social world and particularly looking at it through the experiences of people of color and their experiences with the web as a, unfortunately, a vehicle for um, perpetuating and inflaming um racism and, and racial discrimination. Uh, but I think, you know, as we're going to get to in the discussion, also appropriating that technology in ways that are emancipatory and, and, and resistance oriented. Uh, the first question, you know, when I have someone on who's uh, written such a fantastic book is I always uh, like to start with just the, the basic question, which is maybe uh, deceptively complicated. Uh, you know, how did this project come about? Whew, that is a long story. Um, <laughs> right. So I think that, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, I, you know, and we were just talking about kind of the differences in our our upbringing versus what, what kids are going through now. So I, I start the book actually with talking or telling a story 
about the first time I was called the N word and how that happened playing online video games. And so I think that I, you know, that, that, that experience left me with a question of what does racism online tell me about racism in the real world? And I kind of had that in the back of my head where, you know, guys who I knew who I played video games with in my college who were white, um, you know, who are playing this game. And then when I play the game off campus and I realize almost everyone is using the N word, it made me wonder, are some of my friends using the, the you know, this type of language? Mm. Um, and then, right. And, 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 and so that was just a question that I was left with. And I, and I ended up, you know, kind of asking them directly about it when we're, when we're listening to some Tupac and trying to see, Hey, do you use the N word when you're singing along with the lyrics and just kind of this mix of online and, and, and face to face, you know, experiences kind of gave, you know, began to answer this question for me. And then really when I started thinking about this in an academic context, it was my first year in graduate school um, and I'm, you know, taking a class on race and learning about contemporary theories of racism and all the ways that racism had become more subtle since the years of the classic civil rights movement or, or since Jim Crow ended. And I just thought, you know, this this seems very different than, um, you know, my experiences online, that if we know that that the you know expressions of racism tend to be more subtle, more gentle, less overt, less in your face. Um, if that is the rule, if that is the theory that we're building, how then do we make sense of online spaces where that seems to not be the norm, where the norm is to to use more hostile racial language? And right when you if you look at YouTube comments or or comments under news articles or, you know, go play some video games online where, you know, using openly racist languages is, is an everyday experience. And so. Um, that that kind of led me to to thinking about um, wanting to learn more about how online communication changes the way that we talk about racism, uh, changes the way that we experience racism, and um, you know so this so, so this is something that I was yes yeah, so, uh, so I'm, I'm giving you the long version here right so th- this is at this point I'm just thinking about these things and I'm not writing anything I'm just thinking about it right um, I, you know I'm building a lit review on my own with the expectation that one day. When I have more academic freedom and I won't be branded like the guy who studies racism on video games, I'm going to go and try to answer these questions. And then the thing that actually launched the study was when there was a campus-based website. And this is something I talk about in, in chapter four of the book. There was a campus-based website where students were um, posting, were allowed to post anonymous uh, messages, but you had to be a student to post them. And the the purpose was to be able to have conversations about things that you may be a little bit uncomfortable with. But what really ended up happening is that this this just became a safe haven for all kind of racist and homophobic speech. And um, you know what I wanted to do is I or what I did is is I went and I interviewed students of color at this this college campus and I talked with them about their experiences with race online and in person and and it, you know what impact that had on the way that they viewed the world. And that really was the the start of the study was me seeing that opportunity to, um, you know, because I think a lot of at the time, a lot of the research um, that, that, you know, talks about racism online tends to be, you know, research that takes data from Internet sources, which is great and which is important. But what I really wanted to do was to talk to the, the people and to understand from them how they made sense of their own um, interactions and racialized experiences, you know, not just online, but also in, you know, in their everyday um, lives and 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 how they saw the differences between the, the you know these two social settings is that right is like how do they how do how do they think about and conceptualize um, their lives in, in different spaces whether it's digital or, or you know face to face. 
Right. And, and, and I think building on that, one of the more gripping and, and parts of the book that I found to be really um, encouraging my thinking and, and drawing out uh, so, so many important themes that, that come up in the book was the, the ethnographic uh, component where it was just um, very often these students telling their stories, telling their experiences and trying to um, navigate this new and, as, as you highlight throughout the book, very fraught terrain where um, it, it's in some ways has a, a kind of shadow boxing kind of effect where we, we do know, you know, that you have the people banned from Twitter or banned from um, YouTube for being um, overtly white nationalist racist um, in, in a kind of way that is, is somewhat um, more visceral and direct and identifiable. But I think what your book gets at is this whole um, environment that people of color experience online that is under this veil of anonymity. Um, and it really almost to me, the, the kind of the, my way it kind of came up in my mind reading it is that, and it kind of, you know, builds off of what you were mentioning earlier about, you know, having these experiences online gaming and then seeing your friends in public and saying like, there's this one world where there's these people that seem really comfortable and really at liberty to just spout the most vitriolic, viral, racist things. Um, and it doesn't necessarily jive with one's day-to-day -day experience, but there is some place where those Venn diagrams overlap almost to, by statistical necessity, right? And, and that seems to be such a uh, difficulty for, um, you know, people to, you know, younger people of color coming up in this environment to deal with. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it is something that we we tend to, um, you know, explain away and rationalize as, as mm. right? It, it's just, it, it becomes, it's like uh, graffiti on a train where we don't, where we're getting from point A to point B and we learn to just to drown it out. Um, and, 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 you know, and I think that that is part of what was unique about my initial case study is when I'm, I, I was looking at a website where, um, Students could not say, oh, these are just random racists on the Internet. These are random trolls. These might be, you know, white supremacists from the South. Right. This is kind of our, our you know, our assumptions of who the racists are. And students couldn't do that because you had to be a student to post. So that meant these messages were coming from on campus. And I think that's the key. Right. Right. That's the key difference. And what 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 makes the, the college in this case such an important laboratory is we're less able to make a distinction between our online and face-to-face -face lives in, you know, in, in, in environments like a college campus where people are living together, where what you post on Facebook on Sunday that you're going to see everybody on Monday, right? That the people you see at, mm. at a party on Saturday are the people you see in class on Tuesday. And so I think that's what, that's what makes, you know, at least that, you know, that chapter somewhat unique is, is that we're talking about um, uh, you know, online racism where we may have learned how to, you know, live in, 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 in on the internet despite the ugliness. But then what do you do when it ends up being your neighbor and, and you don't, right? What do, what do you do when you don't know who it is, but you know that it's someone who's in this cafeteria right now? Um, and so I think that that is the, you know, that's a difficult question. Um, of course it is, yeah, whether or not we're on a college campus, it's, it, it sucks to have to see racism online. Um, I, you know, I remember there was a point in time when Obama was president where under every YouTube video I watched, at some point, someone's going to say, oh, Obama's a monkey. 
And I'm like, right, yeah. the videos would have nothing mm. to do with Barack Obama, but that was just, you know, there were there were trolls out there. I don't know whether they were bots or people who made sure to to say something about him at every chance they got. So it's the type of thing that we, we know is there and we learn to rationalize away, um, but it's having an impact on the way that we understand the world, understand racism. And really, right, when we think about protecting kids, that we know how to prepare kids for certain types of racism, right? We know how to give them the talk about, um, you know, interacting with police we know right we know all right we, we we can talk with them about microaggressions and and the things that are not said and the 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 things that we may experience that are about race without people naming race but i think that we right now we have to realize that part of of the way we have to socialize kids is for them to understand you know how to be safe and how to be resilient um you know despite the ugliness that can take place online Right. Um, and, and I think it, you put it that way in the book. I mean, it, it's some ways shocking, but not shocking. The case, I believe it was um, politically incorrect in Chicago or something. PIC was the website we were referencing. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Right. Well, I wanted, I definitely uh, uh, want to to dig into that a little bit because I think it really is an illustrative um, case of, of some of the, the broader themes and concepts you're uh, advancing in the book. Um, but one thing I wanted to uh, ask, you know, for, for you to comment on or to discuss a little bit more, um, stepping back a little bit, because I think it's a, it's a really important um, insight that, uh, for me at least, framed a lot of what else comes in the book and arguing the notion that racism grows out of racist policies rather than a kind of more common view that racist policies grow out of racist views. And this, you know, this can sound like just uh, overly dense academic stuff um, in, in terms of that. But I think mm. that shifting of the causal sequencing is massively important, you know, for, for understanding the framework you're bringing to this book, but I think for making a much more important wider point about understanding how race and racism, um, you know, intersects with, um, you know, everything from the high state actions all the way down to our everyday kind of experiences. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could kind of develop or explain that idea a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I think when we look at the origins of racism, that racism emerges out of capitalism and colonialism. And so racism, as we know it, is not just about an attitude. It's not just I think that the popular definition of racism is right. Someone who hates, uh, you know, a racial group. If you hate black people, if you hate Jews, that makes you racist. But that mm -hmm. is not the way that we um, define racism in sociology. We think about racism as an attitude that legitimates or justifies racial inequality. So, again, looking back at the origins of, of racist ideas, this is right. You have this you have Africa, this vast continent full of natural resources. And you have countries in Europe and, and uh, you know, that want to take those resources. Mm -hmm. And so in order to justify the, you know, the rape and torture and, and murder of, you know, thousands, millions of, of Africans, what do you have to do? You have to say, oh, they are less than human. That's the only right. way you can morally and ethically justify those actions. And so the racist ideas come out of the need to legitimate uh, racist public policy. Mm 
Um, and this is something that we can see racist ideas changing over time, uh, right, to, to fit the need of colonial and, uh, you know, expansion and, and, and capitalist interests. And so, right, how do you justify, you know, taking Native American land? Oh, they're savages. We're going to we're going to civilize them. We have to take the land so that they can be civilized. We're going to introduce them to our religion. And this is how we can justify just, you know, stealing from them. Um, how do you justify keeping, you know, blacks as slaves for 400 years? Well, you say that they're subhuman. You say that they um, are, are, right, are, are less than human. They're right, three-fifths of a human, and they can't think for themselves. They need us. They would die out if it, if it weren't for us, right? Um, and so I think that, that, that time and time again, we can see that racist ideas come from racist policies. Now, to give another example of this, um, right, we can look at the change in racist ideas over the last 75 years. That during mm. the Jim Crow era, and when I say the Jim Crow era, I mean the, the time in American history where discrimination was legal, segregation was the law of the land, racism was the law of the land, which meant that people did not have to be embarrassed about being racist. So they weren't. Racism was open. Um, people were right. People were willing to admit their racism. Um, and right, one of the examples I give about this is there was a, um, you know, a, a study in the 30s or 40s where a sociologist sent a survey to 250 restaurants and hotels around the country and asked them, "Would you serve a Chinese person if they came to your establishment?" And 99% of the places said, "No, we wouldn't." But when that sociologist went on a tour of those 250 places with a Chinese couple, all but one let them in. So people were more willing to admit their racism because it's okay, racism is allowed, than they were to act on it. And nowadays we have the opposite problem where racism is not allowed, racism is illegal. So people, right, but, but, but people find ways to keep black folks out of restaurants and, and nightlife venues. And this, right, there's a whole host of research on the kind of the, the racist policies that clubs have to try and keep their clientele white. And so, right, my purpose there is, is to show that, right, as the law of the land changed, as Jim Crow was shut down, as the, right, but the, the victories of the classic civil rights movement uh, um, led to segregation being outlawed. Um, you started to see a change in, in people's willingness to admit their racism, that on surveys, people are no longer saying, yes, we are racist because it's no longer socially acceptable to be racist. Um, right. So the attitude followed the change in policy. Right. When, when you first started desegregation, people were white people were violently opposed to that. They were throwing rocks. They were right. They were causing riots. And right. It wasn't right now. Years later, when you see more people saying, oh, yes, I, I don't think that these, I don't think the segregation is right. It's not because they had an attitude change and then decided to vote. Let's desegregate. No, the, the policy was forced upon them. And then we can see the attitudes, the measured attitudes change over the next couple of decades. Right. And importantly, as a kind of note on that is um, one of the most contentious um, zones um, around uh, the um, desegregation of schools uh, was in Boston, Massachusetts. Right. Um, that, you know, that kind of, again, um, takes away the, the narrative that all of this is concentrated in, in the Deep South. I mean, certainly um, there are massive uh, uh, and, and awful history of racial discrimination and violence and, and so forth. Um, but I think, you know, that it, it's, it's always, you know, interesting to think about that, that this battle over desegregation or resistance to it, throwing rocks, yelling at kids, um, you know, casually um, using the N-word in, in public forums, um, you know, un, un, uh, 
certainly took place um, within Boston, Massachusetts, which is often looked to as a um, you know center of, of progressive and liberal thought, um, which I always think is an important addendum to that discussion. Yeah, no, absolutely right. And again, so this is this is another great example of um, how right you know racist attitudes follow policies that that in the South you had uh, segregate right the, the way the segregation worked is that that people right whites and blacks were closer in physical proximity, and so that meant that you had to have kind of a more violent um, you know explicit expressions of racism in order to maintain social distance, mm. whereas in the North. You had segregation by neighborhood where you didn't right like where where um, because they were not living their day to day lives shoulder to shoulder with black folks that they didn't develop this kind of code of how we need to discuss and treat blacks because they weren't around. But when black folks right. started moving north, you know, their neighborhoods were bounded by violence that if you moved across the border to the white neighborhood, your house got bombed out. And that's right. right. So, so it, right. So I, I absolutely. And there's the right. There's a history of, of those things in Boston. You know, funny enough, there's still kind of a, a, a busing program in Boston where those kind of things right, that, that, that has its origins in the kind of desegregation or school integration policies. Um, and so I, I think we don't have a whole lot of those that are that are still around. And then, too, you know, um, Martin Luther King, when he came to Chicago, said that racism was more entrenched here than anywhere in the South. Um, and right. the, yeah, I say that as a native Chicagoan that right that we are in the north, but that does not mean that that we are free from the problem of racism. So a lot of our assumptions about where racism lives has a lot to do with you know explicit racism um, and you know more subtle forms of racism. Um, I think you know I, I think are equally as ingrained. Right. Um, and, and one thing that uh, came to mind in thinking about, you know, in the importance of understanding that that, you know, racism was developed as a kind of um, posterior, like backward looking way to rationalize um, a set of political desires, a set of desires about commanding resources, um, controlling power um, and so forth, uh, really touches upon, I, I, you know, by trade, I'm a political economist and I'm really interested in kind of um, particularly you know, history and modernity and capitalism and all these big messy things. And, you know, one thing I, I often, you know, try to stress when, when I'm teaching this to students is this ugly legacy of, of what, you know, for kind of um, euphemistically was called, thought of as like a scientific racism, right? And, and this idea of, you know, all of this effort in terms of, you know, phrenology and skull sizes. And, and these were people that were at, you know, world-class universities, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Berkeley, what have you, right? These are not, these are not crackpots, right? And the reason I brought, you know, kind of bringing this into the discussion is one, I think it kind of demonstrates, you know, this kind of sequencing. Um, but two, that it's, it certainly seems to, uh, within some circles and, and within people that are, I guess, you know, somewhat, um, quote unquote, legitimate actors or people who are not considered like Alex Joneses. I'm, I'm not saying legitimate in a, in a kind of normative right, sense, right. but legitimate in that they, they have entree into the discourse, um, in a way that, that right. um, is troubling are, are bringing back, um, in, in, you know, in some ways trying to revalorize um, what I would call this kind of, you know, I called it a, a pseudo intellectualized colorblind racism, which is another term you use in the um, book, colorblind racism. And, and really, and I thought about, you know, these, these kinds of people like Sam Harris, and he's, you know, in cahoots with Charles Murray. And, and I think to me, it's, it's this dogged, you know, endless effort 
to try to say that these discrepancies, these awful legacies and, and, the, and the discrepancies they've yielded in terms of criminal justice, in terms of police abuse, in terms of wealth, in terms of all of these things is not a structural factor of, of racist and racist racism and racist policies, but is really the outgrowth of some objective scientific thing. And to me, um, I, and, and, you know, the last kind of thing is I, I was kind of in, in, in searching around Adam Sewer for the Atlantic wrote an excellent piece about its reemergence. And, and that's, I came across a piece written by um, the you know, journalist um, Ezra Klein. And, and, you know, he, I think his, the, the article put it best is that because Charles Murray went on the Sam Harris thing and it's called forbidden knowledge, right? That's a big kitschy thing. Like talking about these racial intellectual differences is so forbidden. And, you know, as Klein put it, he said, it's, it's not forbidden knowledge. It's the, one of the most ancient forms of racism used to legitimate bigotry, discrimination, violence against people of color and black people in particular. So I, I just thought of that when reading about this kind of that this is part and parcel to that effort to try to legitimate and create some sort of, of quote unquote objective um, knowledge that vindicates kind of white culture, white identity, white kind of whiteness as a certain uh, reified intellectual, social, cultural, right? And that's why you often, a, a big code word would be, we need to, we need to focus on the Western tradition and teach the Western classics, right? That not that everybody who advocates that is, 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 you know, arguing for a kind of, um, white nationalist approach to history, but in, in a lot of circles, that's kind of a coded way to, um, engage in this sort of, uh, again, you know, oh, maybe there was racism, but, you know, there just has to be something special about white people. I mean, <laughs> maybe that's kind of, that's not a very intellectual way to put it, yeah. but yeah. that, that kind of seems what, what, what <laughs> is, what the upshot of this is really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that you're, you're making some great points here and you reminded me of, there's a, there's a documentary called Race, the Power of an Illusion um, that I show my students. And in it, um, it talks about a time in history when there were measured racial disparities in health outcomes so that black black folks had lower life expectancy. And, uh, you know, the, this is back in the, the early 1900s. And um, what, you know, experts were saying, the health ex experts were saying is that black people are physically, genetically inferior and they are going to die out as a race. And so this is a racial attitude that what like what is its social function? It, it 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 means that hey, it is not our fault. This is not a public health crisis. This is not about racism and uh, and and you know us forcing black folks to live in a certain neighborhood that doesn't have the right resources that can allow children to grow up healthy. And instead, it's about no, there's something wrong with them. So right, this is a racist idea that is you know legitimates the racist policy of neglect and oppression. Right. Um, and right, just think about how different that stereotype of blacks is then versus now, where now you have the opposite stereotype. Oh, black folks are physically right, superior. Right? right. We need football players. We need to be black. White folks can't play cornerback. Um, but mm. then they are right. But, they, you know, they, but they can't be coaches, though. So let's let the white folks stay coaches and then let's let the black players play on the field and get the concussions. And so, right. So this this mentality. Uh, right. So, again, so it, like when we when we grow up with the stereotype, we think it's been there forever. And then you look in, right. you know, historically and you can find where that stereotype came from. And so this mm. is an example of like black folks were 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 once seen as being physically inferior. 
And then, right, you know, you have the, you know, the Olympics and, and black folks are showing out and all of a sudden, oh, we can't say they're in fear anymore. So then how do we explain why, you know, their, um, you know, their life expectancy is so short? Oh, it's got to be because they're not given access to healthy food. Right. And right. so so again, that these things change over time, given social policy and given our need to excuse um, bad social policy and its consequences. Right. No, that that's a really um, uh, excellent, thoughtful way to put it. And one more thing, and I'm I'm just going to nerd out with one more thing, and then I there, there, I want to get to some of the um, um, really interesting uh, aspects of the book about technology and, and its its interaction with um, uh, young people's lives uh, today. Um, but that is you know because it really just did just come to my mind. I'm, I'm currently kind of I always like to go back to classics, and I've been reading. Um, parts of Emmanuel Wallerstein's like world systems theory. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a, a really, really packed with a lot of interesting insights about capitalism and capitalist development. But one thing that really stuck out to me, and it's, I think right online with what you know, we've been talking about and what you were mentioning, um, is, you know, he noted that, you know, even during like the Renaissance and if we're going back to like 16th, 15th, 16th, 17th century, um, for a lot of Europeans, their model of an ideal you know, at least in terms of political philosophy, political systems, were really tended to be um, Egypt and China. And that what we take now, that this idea that, that all of this is rooted in Greece and, and Greek, um, you know, philosophy, which was important and was read, and, and I don't want to diminish it, but that reification of Greece, he argued, was really part and parcel of as this kind of consciousness of whiteness and, and particularly European distinctiveness and, and, you know, connected with industrialization and so forth, there was a kind of impulse to seek out a somewhat ethnic or racial kindred to, to, to map these kinds of, you know, notions of, of greatness onto or, or something. I don't know if that's making a whole lot of sense, but I, I found that to be fascinating because, you know, you, you grow up and you're trained in, in, in Western institutions and it's just a stock thing like, oh, the Greeks inspired this, which inspired this. And, and, right. and you know, as Wallerstein points out, like actually, no, people tended to see Egypt and China as again, these kind of apexes of, of human political development. Um, but the, the necessity. And I said, that's not to diminish the, the Greeks. And I, I mean, people did. I'm not trying to over overstate this, but I think it's an important kind of nuance that reveals the sort of impulses we've been discussing. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, that is, that is really interesting. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm not super familiar with, with that shift. Um, I did go to Egypt for the first time this summer and I've just been, you know, so, so I think, you know, and coming back, I've been watching all kind of videos and I've, you know, just kind of seeing the way that even with Egypt, you have this, um, th this attempt by folks to say, oh, Egypt was white. And then right. Right, that, that the pyramids were <laughs> yes. built by, right. That these, these, I'm laughing because it's ridiculous. Right, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. And right, you see pictures of, oh, AI just, you know, told us what Cleopatra looks like. And right, it's a white person. And you know, and so things like that are, are happening where, you know, so it's interesting to hear like that, that, you know, before they were, they were trying to say that Egypt was a white country, um, that they were, you know, that, that, that um, they were trying to bring it, you know, move attention away from China and Egypt to, to Greece. Right. Um, you know, so that, and I'm sorry, again, I'm, we're, I'm, I'm, we're nerding out a little bit here. So I, I do want to turn this um, back into um, uh, one of the things that I found really uh, 
one of the best attributes of, of, of many within the book was it really, because to me, there's always this kind of conundrum when thinking about technology um, in, in a sense is, you know, and this is a kind of age old and it's a somewhat of a circular debate, you know, is technology merely a mechanism that is reflective? Like it, it, it manifests and brings out what is already kind of within us in, as individuals, as a society, um, or to what extent is technology, you know, uh, constitutive or like formative and like, you know, the technology itself kind of creates and, and, you know, creates or recreates us as human beings in human society. And I think your um, book really um, gets, you know, delves into that question and, and explores, you know, that it's not either or or both and and really demonstrates um, the ways that technology, especially as it relates to the experiences of people of color um, and, and uh, younger people of color on college campuses uh, and elsewhere, that it is both reflective and, and you know, formative. And so, I, I mean, I'm going to ask you again a massive question that uh, I, I, you know, I, I don't think, I don't, I don't want to uh, just open up a huge, um, a huge topic, but, uh, you know, in, in your, to your kind of view, what is, what are the most significant ways that internet and social media platforms kind of have impacted issues tied to race and conversations about race? Whew, that, so that is a big one. Um, <laughs> right. So, so take it. I mean, yeah, if you want to just one, pick a few. A, no, no, it's fine. I love it. And, you know, I I love it when you, you say you're nerding out. And so I think this is great. And, you know, and actually I'm surprised about that question because the, the, it seemed like you're going in a different direction in terms of thinking about the chicken or the egg technology or culture, which I also think is, a you know, kind of a fascinating um, you know, train of thought. Um, but how, so how does social media change the way that we talk about race? So, um, there are several ways, right? And so the first one is the one that we've talked about, um, a little bit already, which is it can allow people to be more comfortable being more explicitly or openly racist. So people who, um, felt that feel the need to hide their racism because racism mm -hmm. is not, you know, socially acceptable in most mainstream situations. Online can find communities where they can feel like these these hidden ideas that they have can be more socially acceptable, um, right? And so racism can be a little bit more open. Um, part of this, what like you know, another part of this is that research finds that conversations online tend to be more hostile, whether or not they're about race. So something about not looking a human being in the eye makes you feel like there are no consequences to being mean to them. And so we just see more bad behavior in discussions online. And that's unfortunate um, all the time. But then right when it, when it comes to race in particular, you know, things can get, things can get really ugly. Um, now on the other side of that, and, and, you know, what I try to focus on for the second half of the book is resistance. That this is not just a story about how, you know, we see more racism online. It's a story about how we are responding to this racism online. And I find that this, the, you know, that part of the story to be very inspiring is that, you know, in face to face settings, Research says that the most common way to respond to microaggressions or subtle forms of racism is to just not respond. But online, you know, what, you know, when I talk with students, they had very different ways of, of talking about how people challenged and resisted racism in online spaces than they did in face to face situations. Where, you know, a student told me about a, a person making a, a racist joke online and someone, you know, clapped back at them and told them it was racist. And that student got embarrassed and shunned on campus. And then he said, no, there's never been a situation where someone makes a comment like that and someone else doesn't respond. 
that you have kind of a community of people who are willing to stand up, stand up against racism um, in a way that is different than how we have come to expect the way that people stand up against racism in face to face settings. And I'm not talking about, you know, the big activist movements, because obviously standing up to, against racism means at some point hitting the streets. Right. I'm talking about just in our daily interactions that typically we ignore racial microaggressions and online that is not the case. And so by being able to be physically distant, it means that you're not scared of, of you know, physical confrontation. You're not scared of, of that type of a consequence for standing up against racism. You have more time to think. And then really, instead of it being all the pressure on you to think of something in the moment that, you know, you have other people who are witnessing these things who take that take place in kind of quasi public spaces so that, it, that all the responsibility isn't on you, that it's, uh, it's you can have a collective response to racism when you're online. And so I think that when we think about how is social media, right back to your question, changing, um, you know, the way people talk about race online, it's 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 making, you know, it, it's it's unmasking racism. It's making racism more visible, but it's also you know, uh, um, empowering folks to see, witness, and take part in uh, resistance against racism um, in, in ways that, that feel very new and feel, you know, very, very hopeful in terms of us being able to change the national discourse. Right. No, you know, in that, in some ways, I, I feel like uh, um, a way that the book speaks to and provides some illumination of this, as you mentioned, this kind of um, uh, difficult kind of tangled web of culture and technology. And, and, you know, does technology just kind of reflect culture or does it produce culture or cultures, maybe better said. Uh, and I think, you know, your um, detailed uh, um, exploration of how this is experienced in day-to-day -day lives of people um, and, um, uh, you know, in, in that line, get, you know, including their voices um, directly in the book through the uh, kind of ethnographic and, and interview research, I think really brings to light the ways that, of course, it, it's both, which is always generally the right answer with these things, but uh, it, that's not really satisfying. <laughs> I think it really draws out threads that help us understand how it's both, how these you know, this kind of complicated web um, uh, works in, in, in people's lives. And as you noted here, you know, like there's, there's this aspect where people feel uh, a certain space, a certain freedom to address and, and confront, you know, clearly um, bigoted either, you know, either by insinuation or, or at times more direct um, behavior and, and kind of flip the normal script where, again, all of the onus falls on the person targeted or, um, you know, in some ways uh, um, faced to kind of how to respond to this, where it changes the kind of power dynamic, which is something that um, really, I, I, you know, it, it, it may, it, you know, once I read it, it made sense to me intuitively, but reading your book really illustrated um, kind of how that has shifted that dynamic. And, and I wanted to lead that into a discussion about, um, you know, because as you mentioned, eventually people um, often, you know, necessarily um, and for a host of important reasons need to kind of um, create collective action, as you mentioned, hit the streets and, and so forth. But you, know, you also kind of describe a process of creating, um, I like the notion of a, of a counter space, right? I, I study um, Korean um political, you know, politics and development and kind of um, the fraught nature of development in, in Korea. And um, that's often a, a notion about kind of radical student activists in the 1980s, like the, the, the counter public space. And um, that was the 80s. So it was very much more of like a kind of 
it, it was an, an ideological space, but also often a, a quite literal physical spaces that they were creating for themselves to kind of read banned books and, and organize and so forth. But um, I, so that's why I was really fascinated by the idea of moving beyond this important ability to, again, you know, call out, address, confront um, this behavior in a way that may not be possible in um, day-to-day inter- or not possible or not desirable, or as you mentioned, potentially dangerous in, in face-to-face um, interactions. Uh, but but you kind of point out that this also can, um, has developed into kind of um, what you call as like a counter space. And you, you discuss a lot of like black Twitter and, and um, how that developed. And so can you talk a little bit about that idea of the counter space, uh, particularly online? Yeah, yeah. So I borrow, right, so I, I use the term online counter space to refer to online spaces that normalize discussions and critiques of racism and provide social support to students of color. But I borrow the term counter space from literature on, on um, education that talks about the, you know, the types of spaces that students of color have um, on predominantly white campuses that, you know, where they, they can go to seek su- support. And so it's the mm-hmm. cultural organizations, right? Um, um, I'm thinking about, right, where I recruited students. I would go to the black club. I would go to the, to the Latinx club. And this is where I'm, I'm finding mm-hmm. folks of color to talk to is that these are places that are protective for, for uh, young people. That when, you know, if microaggressions are the norm on campus and if, um, you know, uh, not responding is the norm on campus, that those type of things can be exhausting. That we have research that shows that they, they lead to increased depression and anxiety. Um, and, and, you know, they can be they can be harmful to students as they're trying to, to survive in, in college. And so finding counter spaces are, is important for, you know, maintaining, you know, uh, your sanity. And so when I, when I write, when I write about online counter spaces, I'm talking about the ways that, right, these are, instead of this being a permanent space, these are online spaces that are, that can be created in a moment and can last for a week. If it's a thread of comments that people are, are uh, responding to, it can be, you're right, it can last for a day or it can turn into a, hey, we're going to make a Facebook group and this is right, we're going to use a hashtag to have a collective communal discussion about a certain topic or a certain issue. And the right, mm-hmm. so when I use that term, I'm, I'm really showing how, um, right, without, you know, a lot of institutional support, how students of color created for themselves an online counter space that could make them feel more at home and could, right, where, where they could make a, a place where racism was not welcome, where racist jokes could not be explained away as not being about race, where, you know, racist explanations for things were not taken for granted. And so that, right, that is, um, you know, I, I, I introduced that term in the chapter where I look at, um, you know, the, the, the different ways that people respond to racism and racial microaggressions online versus in person. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, people who identify as activists or people who are very vocal about issues of race, um, speaking out and, and making for themselves and their peers places where challenging racism is, you know, is the norm and is the ev- everyday experience. Mm-hmm. Right, and 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 in that way, really, it creates a, a um, in in a, in a positive sense, an alternative kind of reality, right? Because I think often, like it, you know, if you if you if you if you follow, and and I'm 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 overly probably exposed to like a lot of U.S. media, um, even though I'm living overseas, and uh, if you if you know if you if you kind of 
pull the narratives from uh, that. There's often this idea of like, you know, um, an oversimplified like, oh, we're so polarized now and we just create our own realities. And and I do think there there's something to be said for, for there, there can be issues in that. And we can obviously that can turn very dark. But I think one of the things I liked about your book is you say that, you know, this is creating, you know, not I don't know if alternative reality is the right word, a different reality, a, a, a differently con- con- constituted reality that is a form of empowerment, is a form of, of security, is a form of of bonding and collective kind of formation of of shared experiences and shared resistance to these experiences and i think that i you know mentioned to you in our in our discussion before the show that that really um in in a very useful way kind of challenged maybe some of my um old man kind of dismissiveness of online culture right it really in, in a real way i mean it genuinely and that's that's what a good book does it should do is like uh, i mean a lot of places i remember not, you know agreeing and nodding and saying like, this is absolutely right on but at other places i'm like huh that is true and i haven't really ever thought about it that way um and and one um you know thing that really stuck out to me as as kind of one um uh, identifying something that I, I, you know, I, I said I try to stay up with things as much as possible, but really showed that in, in many ways I've lived, you know, been living in East Asia for 15 years, so maybe that's part of it. But I, I don't have, I don't really use Twitter. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a kind of a dinosaur, and I don't, I don't really interact in any spaces. That's another thing the book made me think about, um, where there's anonymity. Like everything I do is like chat rooms, where you know, and so I don't have a lot of you know direct experience with these kinds of anonymous platforms. Always a long windup to say is there's the 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 whole um, phenomenon of uh, white people uh, was just you know mm-hmm. really fascinating to me and um, enlightening and and how you know that motif you know and you you really elegantly kind of constructed an analytical narrative around that word and and you know for the listeners that's w y p i p o which was a kind of um, uh, phrase used for as as a mode of expression. I'll let I'll let you describe it uh, more. And 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 to me, the way you connected that to um, arguing for a kind of transformation for, of Dubois' double consciousness to a double sided consciousness um, was to me one of the more of, of many kind of satisfying intellectually and and also just in terms of my own thinking about the world and in the world I live in um, in in a very real sense was was to me it just really stood out. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I think that that was probably one of the more fun chapters for me to write. And, you know, because the the book is really driven by interviews with students, but then I also do a lot of of analysis of uh, Twitter data, uh, social media data over a decade. And so um, the, you know, white people is a term is shorthand for white people, but it's spelled in a way that, that, you know, kind of the automatic moderation would not catch it if right because it, it's used to um, you know oftentimes generalize about white folks in ways that can be viewed as being right sometimes it's negative sometimes it's funny um, but right the, it, it's folks wanting to have a discussion among themselves about uh, um, you know their experiences with whiteness um, with mm. white supremacy um, and right. you know in, in, in various contexts. And, you know, the way I bring uh, Du Bois in there is, right, double, double consciousness refers to how um, Du Bois talks about how black people in America um, have a, a double consciousness where they are American, but they are also black. And those things, I mean, right, that on one hand, they're supposed to have access to this freedom, this meritocracy, but they don't. 
and right that they they recognize what you know the the how white prejudice shapes their lives and right that so they have to deal with this kind of this this you know duality of feeling you know the weight of oppression and discrimination while also you know being in a, a country that's supposed to be the land of the free right um and 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 it really it really refers to an almost spiritual uh, brokenness of, you know, this inability to have a singular self-consciousness, that your self-consciousness, your concept of self is always going to be, um, you know, infected with with white supremacy, or with white prejudice, with racism, that racism impacts the way you think about yourself. And there really is no solution um, to this problem that Du Bois really gives or that people have talked about since. And so when I thought about double-sided consciousness, it's just I, I see the way that black folks on Twitter and other online spaces, um, you know, talk about whiteness as being something that externalizes these problems that we've often had to internalize. Where so instead of having these conversations about experiences with whiteness and with racism and, you know, private spaces that by having it on Twitter, even if it's a, a conversation for us and by us, it's a conversation on a platform where people are watching. And the rest of this is, it is this externalizing of the things that will cause people to develop a double consciousness. And instead of accepting it as being, oh, this is a problem with us or something wrong with us because of how they think about us. Um, it is more in a James Baldwin type sense of externalizing that problem as being with whiteness. And, and really, right, by using this term, it's your, it's this other of of whiteness and of white folks and of white behaviors and attitudes and you know and and you know and and and, and it varies the things that are discussed from just you know cooking methods to um, how people how white folks folks party versus how black folks party to you know actual experiences with racism um, and and you know so it really is um, yeah it's one of my favorite chapters in the book I opened the chapter talking about Kendrick Lamar and Vince Staples two of my favorite rappers and so it really is a you know a space where where I I'm I'm, I'm able to kind of work out the the theoretical muscles a little bit. Right. Um, and, and and kind of dig deep into some of these ideas. Mm, no, and, and to me, that's, you know, what uh, I, I think often it, it is chided and, and so forth, um, like, you know, intellectual pursuits. But um, I think this really demonstrates a way that, um, you know, uh, a, a clear kind of intellectual, intellectually driven project can say really interesting and thoughtful things about um, very, you know, contemporary phenomenon and and what you were able to draw from that kind of phenomenon of white people and and to me I, I you know I thought that was just brilliant in terms of how you were able to kind of use this um, trend on Twitter and this this kind of form of, of discussion on Twitter and one thing that just came out in your comments that um, because I, I you know I said I, I I don't like I don't have anything against Twitter or anything it's not I'm not like you know, I'm not protesting it or something by not using it. It's just, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I said I'm a bit of a dinosaur and, and <laughs> so forth. But uh, um, one thing that's interesting is that idea that it creates a, a possibility or potentiality to have this kind of somewhat inside community, but that is somewhat publicly observable. Um, and that's fascinating, right? To me, that's a really interesting dynamic mm -hmm. I hadn't really thought about, right? That, you know, the, it, that you have some of the um, qualities of intimacy that that a, a kind of collectivity um, offers, but at the same time, um, you know, somewhat purposefully able to share that publicly 
um, to potentially, you know, have an opportunity for people to maybe confront, reflect, think about their own behavior, you know, thinking about a white audience like watching that. And so I never really thought about it that way. And I think that's that's fascinating um, as, as a, a space. Um, now, I'm, I'm yeah. almost when I was working on the outline for the discussion, I, you know, I, I feel awful um even having to ask this because i just i I, one thing that i I find like dystopic about the world we live in is like you know three or four years ago i think i vaguely knew who like elon musk was like if you really asked me i i I thought you know and now (laughs) i just feel like the guy like how is elon you know because i said i kind of read pretty normy stuff like the washington post the new york times like atlantic you know so even reading those i'm inundated with like musk stuff and like the fact that i have to taint my own uh, my own show with the name but i do wanted to ask because i do think it is important <laughs> um because a lot of the book is um folk you know the, does do a lot of interesting analysis of trends on twitter and, and twitter communities um what your thoughts are and, and i believe you're quite, you know fairly active on twitter um how the kind of new ownership by Elon Musk has affected it other than like this, whatever being called X now or whatever that means. But, you know, um, I, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that, that when he was first buying it, people were worried that it was no longer going to be a home for black Twitter. And I saw lots of people creating profiles and other, um, you know, places and saying, this is where I'll be when Twitter dies type of type of thing and uh, you know my mindset was was I don't know that 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 is going to happen and here's why it's because again right we see racism follow capitalist interests the most used hashtag of all time on Twitter is black lives matter so if you drive right, black twitter drives so much conversation on on twitter and right when you're talking about public versus private like absolutely i think you look at how black people use twitter and that is what you find is that Black folks are starting trends that journalists are watching black Twitter like hawks because if there's something clever that said they, they're then going to go write the article on it. And they're right, not necessarily give credit to where credit is due. And right, I think that there's too much money to be made off black Twitter, you know, speaking mm. frankly, for them yes. to try and drive black Twitter away. That Elon needs black Twitter for his advertising revenue. So I think I was less worried about it, uh, um, you know. Uh, um, something like that happening for us. Now, I do think that there's potential, um, and we'll see how the, what happens with this in the long run, of Twitter being a more hostile place for folks of color, where we see where we're, we're, we're more exposed again to kind of just more explicit racist content. If, right, the, the way that, that um, Elon is kind of, you know, conceptualizing or operationalizing free speech is that, hey, you can say anything about anybody, you know, like, and, 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 I, and I don't know that, that, that uh, I, I feel like that that may be, um, something that he may hold more as personal belief than something that, of the way that he's uh, running the company that I think that they're still going to have some moderation. Um, but, you know, one thing we're not going to see is Jack Dorsey was in conversation with black activists about how to make Twitter more hospitable or more um, helpful for black organizers. Um, as they're right, like actually using Twitter as an activist tool, I think that's done. That's done for, right? Are we, are we right, uh, um, and so things like that are gone. Um, it's not going to be a, a, a space where um, there's there's that type of an open dialogue. Um, you know, who knows if we'll have to start paying to use it. Um, I think that that's like one of the ideas that Elon has floated out there. So anyway, yeah, I think that there are some changes, but they seem to be more stylistic changes at this point. Um, and I, and I, and I don't think that, um, 
you know, as a result of the changes, we're going to see black Twitter go away. Excellent. No, well, that is good to hear. I said, as, as someone who's not very active on the platform, uh, I, you know, I, I was curious uh, to, to hear your thoughts on that. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry to have to, to, to trot his name into the conversation. I really, it's just blown my mind. I'm like, well, I, I, sw- I mean, honestly, like three years ago, and that's to me is like, I, I try to just retain like a healthy non opinion about Elon Musk because I just, I feel like, that's the uh, the tragedy of our times. These like people become like, well, why do I have to hear so much about this guy? Why do I, I don't want to think of anything about him? So, but in this case, it was quite germane. So wor- worth it, worth asking. Um, so one one thing I you know maybe uh, I know I've already taken up over uh, almost an hour of your time, but one thing I wanted to ask you about, um, and maybe this would be a, a, a kind of way to uh, draw towards some sort of conclusion, um, is. About because one of the things that also comes out in the book and and it is tied to this um, um, phenomenon uh, in Chicago, but other you know you you document some other instances of of activism um, you know arising in terms to respond to even things like holding racist theme parties or or you know certain um, uh, promulgation of racist content um, unsurprisingly very often emanating from fraternities shocker um, and uh, <laughs> um, sorry. and um, uh, there was no fraternities in my university so I, I feel feel easy to dismiss them uh, and. Uh, um, <laughs> In, 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 but one thing I think, uh, you know, that, that you really, what, that, that a really human touch that comes out of this, and I think it gets lost in the kind of discourse as framed is, you know, in some ways it's the term we've settled on, but that this, this idea of microaggressions is, it's somewhat of a misnomer. I mean, in the ways that it really does impact people in terms of their stress, their mental health, um, issues of depression and, and mental and physical well being, that these are, you know, these things are, are often, uh, you know, aggregate and they, they are something that people have to encounter daily. And, you know, life is hard in the best of circumstances, but, you know, for people, um, uh, that have to grapple with and be confronted with these kinds of, you know, because they do really put you in a in a moral quandary. It puts a person in a moral quandary of like, do I call this out? Do I just get along? If I call it out, it could be more stressful. It could get escalated. And that's things I don't want to deal with. If I don't say anything, is that kind of like shying away from a, a responsibility to kind of stand up for myself? And, you know, and I think people experience that in various ways, maybe not racial microaggressions, but I think to have to deal with that. And, and that's a bit of a wind up and to, to ask, because I, I, I had that in mind um, when I was reading that, what I had in mind in, in you know, full disclosure, I, I wrote an essay kind of critiquing this um, brand of thought. Um, so I, I guess my cards are uh, metaphorically on the table um, is kind <laughs> of in, in the, in the, in the, in the, con- in the context of what I, this is my own, I kind of call them like the counter woke intelligentsia. And I'm thinking of people like Ann Applebaum, John McWhorter, Yaksa Monk, um, these kind of left leaning, left of center, you know, uh, purportedly progressives who really kind of, um, you know, poo poo or kind of, you know, are very dismissive of these sorts of actions and, and even, you know, have this idea. Ann Applebaum had a big like cover article in the Atlantic months ago. That was kind of the basis of my essay kind of critiquing this, this view is that this is, this is, um, overly sensitive. This is overly censorious. This is limiting free speech. Um, you know, I think Yaksa Monk has a piece, you know, I think the Atlantic is a font for these people. Um, you know, John McWhorter has a, a fairly regular column in the New York Times. So they have pretty big vehicles to talk about how this is degrading the, the discourse and so forth. And, and, you know, reading about 
this, you know, thinking about that kind of thought, you know, and they're not connected in by any direct way, but they often advance very similar lines of argumentation. And I, I you know, I think your book speaks in, 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 you know, perhaps not directly or, you know, but like some, at least indirectly or by, um, you know, it, what it posits, it, it kind of rebuts that outlook, I think, in very powerful ways. So I don't know if you had any kind of thoughts on on that sort of line that is pretty popular or quite prevalent in the discourse. And and just to clarify, you're referring to people who think that um, the woke, I'm putting woke in air quotes here, right, right. that woke folks are being too sensitive. Is that the critique? Right. Yeah. And, 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 and I think, you know, okay. in, in, in reading them, like overly censorious, and then ultimately it's going to limit yeah. free speech. And in some ways, I think that connects to this PIC website in Chicago, you know, like we need freedom to yeah. speak and yeah. you're just, you're just, you know, trying to tamp down people's um, expression and so forth. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, so my my take on that is going to be um we have been you know, uh, speech has been harmful for a long time. I uh, read the norm has been for people to be able to say things and get away with things that do us harm that we experience in silence that we don't tell anyone until we you know we're in a private space or a counter space if you will right mm. uh, that has been the norm and so uh, you know the you know I, I, you know first of all i i love the term woke and i hate that it has become kind of used and you know pejoratively by by mostly by the right but i guess you're saying right by folks on the left too right this right. idea of a woke mob as opposed to you know just someone who's conscious um but right like and so this this notion that the problem is people naming the problem is a i you know i i would find that a little bit silly um and i you know and i think that um you know that i, that I, I don't see it as being problematic for us to to point out the ways that our words are powerful and do harm. And we want to now minimize the harm that is done. We want to be aware of what communities and people are being harmed by the way that we say and do things. I think that that is, that is great. And that is a, a huge change from what used to be, which is racism, sexism, homophobia. These things are so ingrained in our culture that we, we, you know, we're, um, we're, we're in, engaging and, you know, supporting these ideologies every day without even realizing it. And I think that part of what, you know, again, air quotes, the woke mob is doing is by pointing out the times that that's happening so that it can stop happening. That is hugely important. That is something that I see as being a positive. Um, and, you know, to be honest, with some of the this, you know, this conservative push to to get race education out of schools, I see as being tied to some of the things I talk about in chapter eight of when the hood comes off is the the trends and, and Twitter discourse around racial topics over the past decade that mm-hmm. we're right. That, 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 you know, activists and educators and folks of color and anti-racist online have been making academic terms mainstream through social media. And I believe that that is a part of why conservatives are so worried and are trying to now take all racial discussions out of school. And so I think that that shows you that it is right. We are changing the national consciousness. We are changing the national conversation. And, you know, conservatives are reacting out of fear because it does something. 
it, right? It has an impact. And so I think that that, you know, the proof is in the pudding um, and, and right. You know, um, if they, if, if these, if those people you mentioned don't think it's working, well, the conservatives don't th- think that it is working and they're worried about it. And so I'm going to, you know, I, I'm going to encourage people to, to keep on engaging in the fight and, you know, in that way. Well said. Um, no, I, I, I agree um, by and large wholeheartedly. And um, you, you, you keyed in on a, on a word that, uh, again, I, I guess in classic uh, academic fashion, I'm now somehow trying to draw my own my own meager work into this discussion. But no, in the in the essay I wrote, um, uh, I, I really home in on it. And it really does kind of focus as a jumping point, the, the big cover piece by Ann Applebaum. And I don't begrudge her i don't have any personal i don't i don't know her or anything but um the piece i I thought was very shoddy um and and one of the reasons i thought it was shoddy is that i actually did a word count she used the word mob like 17 times and i think you know i i you know i didn't put it in the essay but i think you know the, the implied is that that's a very problematic term in terms of class in terms of race um, and to, and it's in, and it's a way to be dismissive without be, without any precision. What, you know, what's somebody who's standing up for righteousness versus a mob? Like you tell me where that line is. And, and it, it you know, and that word right. seems to have really like this, and you mentioned that term woke mob. And I think, um, th- there's a lot, again, of, of racial and, and class-based kind of connotations of, of in, you know, dismissal of others' intellect and because a mob is an unthinking mass, Right. And uh, and I think, you know, the mm. fact that it's dismissed in that way um, is um, uh, a way of, um, s- you know, sidestepping um, a lot of the content of, of, as you just mentioned, of, you know, these things harm people. And that's kind of how where the connection I drew is that you're really excellent kind of detailing of how. Um, how microaggressions aren't micro when they're experienced over a lifetime, over years, over, you know, day to day experiences that they are quite, they accumulate into something that is quite deleterious to one's, you know, well-being and one's sense of self and, and in, in real, real ways. And um, in, in some sense, uh, you know, the term microaggression itself, um, while I understand it, what it's getting at can be almost um, misleading um, in an unfortunate way, because I think you really point out that these are things that really impact people's lives in a real way. And if you are someone who cares about human well-being, um, this is something you should care about. That was kind of one of my big takeaways. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. And, you know, p- please send your uh, send that essay. I'd love to give it a read. Okay. Yeah, you know, I swear, I swear that, that that's like the classic <laughs> academic conference question where it's like it starts off like a great paper and then it ends up with like what well, you know, it's like the paper I wrote. <laughs> that's the famous <laughs> conference question. <laughs> oh no, it's all right. It's you know, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I love it. I love it. I think it makes for a better conversation, right? That that um that I think that you know, throughout this conversation, you've had some really tremendous ideas that I think that, that are things that I haven't thought about. So I appreciate that. Oh, well, thank you for that. And and I said that to me um, as a, a place to kind of wrap this up. I've already taken an hour of your time uh, and it's getting late in New York um, is uh, <clears throat> that it really did open my eyes in that I said I I tended to be perhaps overly dismissive of um, on the online space as a vehicle for true political transformation and activism. I wasn't wholly dismissive, but I think mm. I was just by my disposition, perhaps also my age, um, not fully 
um, appreciative is probably you know a better way to put it. And I think the book, um, as you, as you mentioned, does delve into um, the darker corners of our society in terms of its ugly history and its ugly you know continuing reality for that many people are are forced to experience as a result of racism. But it does also bring, I think, some um, uh, places for. Um, hope and 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 a positive outlook on as to how these spaces are being created and and utilized in a way that is quite um, efficacious for these kinds of um, causes and and advancing uh, uh, you know not only a society that is you know a society that is more racially just is a society that is more just so um, advancing the cause of justice writ large so thank you so much Dr. Right. Eshman. Oh, thank you. Thank you. This is an amazing conversation. I appreciate your insight and, and, and you know, how closely you read my work. It, you know, so it, it really it was a joy to be able to talk about this with you. Oh, same. I feel the same. Thanks. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, you know, um, one of the words uh, that is focused on and I think is an important part of uh, understanding the book is uh, privilege um, in, in perhaps in a less charged way. I, I must say that I, as I was reading the book, I was like, this is, you know, we think about privilege. Like I'm ser- reading, reading this like brilliantly developed and, and, and written book. And I'm going to be able to like talk to the author and ask questions about it. Um, that is like a genuine privilege. So thank you so much. Oh, man. Thank you. Thank you. This is great. All right. Thanks a lot. Have a great evening. Hey, you as well. Thanks, Kevin.